Hi, and welcome to Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast, highlighting artists, teachers, authors, and philanthropists of the regenerative movement, people who are committed to and showcase qualities of planetary leadership. My name is Julian Guderlei. I'm a transformational coach, a breathwork teacher, and I'm committed to a world that allows people from all walks of life to thrive. I'm your host and creator of Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast, and in today's episode, my guest is Starhawk. Starhawk is an author, activist, permaculture designer and teacher, and a prominent voice in modern earth-based spirituality and ecofeminism. She's the author or co-author of 13 books, including The Spiral Dance, A Rebirth of Ancient Religion of the Great Goddess, and the ecotopian novel, The Fifth Sacred Thing and its sequel, City of Refuge. Starhawk founded Earth Activist Training, teaching permaculture design, grounded in spirituality and with a focus on activism. She travels internationally, lecturing and teaching on earth-based spirituality, the tools of ritual and the skills of activism. And so with these words, I'm really excited for our conversation. Hi and welcome Starhawk. Hi, great to be here. Yes, this is gonna be, this is gonna be a good time. I'm, I'm gonna start you know, with setting a bit of context. We're recording this in August, 2020. And, you know, these are very unprecedented times. And so my question for you right off the bat is, what do you reckon is required for people to, you know, encounter these times with a full heart and with a switch on mind? Um, you know, when you ask that, I'm thinking back to a conference some years ago where I heard Toby Hemingway uh, give a talk. Toby is a great permaculture designer and author. He wrote Gaia's Garden, which I think is still one of the best overall introductions to permaculture. And sadly, he passed a few years ago. Um, but in this talk, he was talking about three qualities, persistence, resistance, and resilience. You know, persistence being that ability to stay who you are, um, to resist being thrown off course, uh, I think of it also as determination, that ability to set a goal or a vision and keep moving toward it. Uh, resistance is that ability to say no to the destructive stuff, to withstand it, to withstand disturbance and withstand assault. And resilience is that ability to bounce back after a disturbance, after a catastrophe, uh, after something that disrupts your course. Uh, and I think if we have those three with maybe a, a good dose of compassion in the mix and a sense of humor, uh, we'll get through these times. Beautiful. Yeah, I, I like the compassion and humor addition to them. I'd love to hone in a bit on resilience because I feel like that's a, a skill that is so vital across any discipline, right? I mean, the ability to bounce back or to adapt. Um, it seems to me that this is what the human species is uniquely set up for, you know, adapting. Um, but, but, but what did you, what did you learn in, in, you know, your, your years of permaculture um, experience in regards to resilience? What can maybe nature teach us even, even more so about resilience and the skill of resilience? Well, one of the things that nature teaches us is in natural systems and ecosystems, um, diversity creates the capacity for resilience. 
And I think that's an important lesson for us to learn right now about our human culture and our human society, because we come from a dominant culture that teaches us that difference is suspect and possibly bad, and that uh, if two things are different, one has to be better than the other, one has to be good, one has to be evil. And that underlies our systems of racism and gender oppression and all the other nasty old isms that are out there, all those patterns of the ways that uh, people say, you know, some of us are better than others. Um, but if we actually understand what nature is telling us, we understand if we have more diversity, if we have people who come from different cultures, different backgrounds, different ways that they look, different religions, uh, different economic strata, different histories, then we're actually increasing the intelligence of the system. We're increasing the number of perspectives we have for looking at a situation or looking at a problem. And that doesn't have to threaten us. Um, we can understand that as actually enriching us and enriching our capacity to find multiple different ways to respond to a crisis. Um, and to me, that is the essence of resilience. Very beautiful. Yeah, let's let's dig in deeper and unpack that even more. I, I think I think we're onto something already. I remember one of my early uh, mantras and one of my my very first international exchange experiences was, "It's not right. It's not wrong. It's just different." Mm -hmm. Which was given to us by that exchange organization to you know to navigate the diversity in an exchange year. We because you you know. Um, you can possibly imagine that was that was just the way I personally encountered just a lot of differences and how humans express who they are, and and I've never let go of this mantra because it's just so it kind of reminds me of what you said in the beginning. It's like almost playfully silly, but it's so simple and true. Like if you're if you're just realizing things are different and not better or worse, and it's not always easy because the dominant culture does quite quite a bit on on pulling us into, you know. Um, seeing the winner, uh, the winner that takes it all. Well, it's kind of that assumption that the universe is a zero-sum game. And so if I have something, it has to come out of what might have been your share. If you have something, it's taking away from me. Instead of understanding that nature is actually incredibly abundant and creates systems of amazing abundance, um, and within that, there are these capacities. In permaculture, we have a number of different principles we use when we're designing a system. And one of them is the idea of getting more than one function out of every element. We call it stacking functions. Mm. You know? And when we do that, we can actually um, increase the amount of benefit we get from any given system any given element um, without having to increase the amount of resources that we use to put into it whether that's human resources or whether that's money or whether that's fossil fuels or whether that's just sheer effort mm -hmm. yeah powerful powerful teaching I'm, I'm inspired to ask you about trust right away because it seems to me that trust is like a vital connection to um, you know, letting in anything that is 
fundamentally just paradigm shifting. And so I'd be curious to hear your take on the experience of trust. And maybe I can ask you here personally, like what is required for you, Starhawk, to, to experience and to connect and trust with, with other people? Well, I think trust is founded on observation. You know, we want to be able to trust, but we also don't want to be stupid. And so, again, in permaculture, we talk about thoughtful, protracted observation. And I think that's especially important right now when we're surrounded by barrages of information. And it's so hard to tell what to trust and what not to trust, what's actually accurate and what's false, whose agenda, you know, who's a real person on the internet who's a bot, you know, who's a troll, who's a, a Russian employee trying to generate uh, discord. So again, going back to our own observation and our own experience, um, to me, that's where trust comes from. And real trust has to be earned. You know, um, I always talk to people who are going into a new community, especially when there's disparities, you know, if you're a white person going into the black community or you're a man coming into uh, an organization with a lot of women. And I think people get very offended if they're not trusted right off the bat. But if you're carrying that historic weight of oppression, even though you may have had nothing to do with it personally, it's not your fault, Never, but you have to recognize that that's there. And it's a barrier to people instantly trusting you, no matter how much of a nice person you might be. Um, so you have to ask, how in this community can I actually fairly earn that trust? Um, some years ago, I was part of a group called the International Solidarity Movement that supported nonviolent resistance in Palestine. And uh, the idea was bringing in internationals. You know, it was harder for the Israelis to shoot and kill internationals, which they did all the time to Palestinians. Um, it wasn't entirely true because we, you know, at least two of our members were killed while I was there, and one was very badly shot. But overall, it was safer to be an international. And that allowed us to open up space for the Palestinians to actually wage campaigns of nonviolent resistance to the occupation. And I remember in our orientation, you know, being told the way you earn trust in the Palestinian community is by sharing the risk. That's how people feel a sense of trust that you mean what you say. Um, I've done work with friends in the black community in San Francisco, um, working with permaculture and youth programs. And again, I remember being told very clearly, look, these kids know people come and they go and they disappear. And mm -hmm. you know, they it's going to take them a long time to trust you because in their experience, you know, all these well-meaning people come in and then they're gone. And so if you want to win their trust, you do that by showing up and showing up over a long time. You know, so I think trust is a beautiful thing when it's earned. 
And to earn it, you have to know in what builds trust in that community and to realize that it's commitment. It's, uh, you know, it's not necessarily just having a pretty face, right? It's about making choices over and over again that are going to show people that you are trustworthy. Mm. It's a very moving answer. Thank you for, for the anecdote, um, you know, as well into the, the nonviolent resistance in, in Palestine. It's a very real answer, you know, that because even though we, we all like to expect that we're trusted right away, and sometimes it's nice to trust someone else just for the benefit of the doubt, I think anyone listening can relate to that feeling that someone else needs to show up in a committed, in a dedicated, in a determined way for us to actually feel the trust long term. I'm going to let that one sink in. I like it. And I'd love to kind of dig deeper into reconciliation as well, because you mentioned it, you know, across so many communities on our planet, this is, this is a real topic that simply hasn't fully happened. You know, it simply hasn't fully happened. Reconciliation, I think, is, has a lot to do with acknowledging um, mistakes, acknowledging what's gone wrong in the past and learning from our past mistakes. And so maybe let's start there to unpack this topic a bit. What does it take for humanity to acknowledge past mistakes? Like, how does that even, how does it even look for us? Well, I think first we have to know the history and that's often very painful because, you know, we get taught history as the history of the kings or the wars or the winners. Hmm. Uh, but if we really go into looking at the history of what ordinary people's lives have been, you know, it's, often, it's pretty grim. <laughs> you know, it's been that way for thousands of years. And, um, and it's been especially grim in the last couple of centuries you know, where we've seen major genocides, we've seen the African slave trade, which included just horrific, unspeakable levels of cruelty and control. Um, we've seen the genocide in this country of indigenous peoples. We've seen the Nazi Holocaust. Um, we see so many things going on today. And I understand why people don't want to look at that. Um, because it is painful. It's painful to acknowledge that and painful on the one hand if you come from the people who've suffered that um, to acknowledge that pain and on the other hand if you come from the people who've inflicted it to acknowledge that pain and the truth is if we go back far enough we probably most of us probably have some of both. Mm -hmm. um, but I think we have to do that work to really understand the human capacity for inflicting cruelty um, and to understand that it comes again from this need to separate people to say some of us some of us are the ones who, who count and the others are filler you know some of us are uh, the ones who for whom civilization was invented and the rest are there to, you know, grease the wheels and keep it moving and do the work that nobody really wants to do. So they have to be forced to do it. 
I'm reading an excellent book right now. It's called Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. Um, it's very painful to read. She's looking at the caste system in India, uh, at slavery and Jim Crow in the U.S., and at the Nazi Holocaust and the, the patterns that they all have in common of oppression uh, and the history. And again, though it's, it's not an easy read, it's... Uh, hurtful to even think about some of these things um, but I think, feel like it's vitally important and she does an excellent job of weaving it together mm -hmm. uh, so you understand how the system works and how it requires an undercast it requires some group of people to be defined as subhuman or non-human and endlessly exploitable and that requires a level of cruelty and terror to be inflicted in order to maintain the system that ultimately dehumanizes everybody involved. Hmm. And since, you know, we're, we're meeting in the context of regenerative culture and how we're building more of that on the planet, I think it's so important that we are developing that resilience to talk about and to connect about the true feelings of um, what was in the way for this resilient culture or this regenerative culture. And, and it's exactly what you're, what you're pointing out. It's, it's this necessity for an undercast, this necessity for separation, this necessity for, you know, um, dividing life into worthy and non-worthy. And I think in 2020, what is really happening, both in my understanding from a cosmological perspective, as well as from a felt human experience is, we're, we're kind of lifting out of that muck. And as part of that, it all really becomes visible, right? I, I remember the history I was taught growing up in Germany. Um, and I might've shared this maybe once before in this podcast, but it's worth, it's worth sharing, actually. I remember that in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War for about, you know, the 45 till about the 60s, that's almost 20 years, no one spoke about the Holocaust. It was something was just swept under the rug because for one, there were still people around, obviously, that were involved in, in, in bad or good ways, but they were involved. And then the 1960s movement at the kind of the dawn of the Aquarian age, that was, you know, like the freedom revolution in the United States and in Germany, it was facing the parent generation and telling them, hey, like, we need to talk about this. Mm -hmm. This needs to be brought up. And so when I was born in 1987, you know, uh, I often like to think of, I was born into this unification wave of Germany taking down the wall and, you know, European Union starting to really become a bigger and bigger um, element in, in, in at least uh, Europeans' life. We were bombarded with the history mm -hmm. as children, as a you shall not forget kind of um, metaphor. And I think there was a, there's a beauty in that because it is, it, it did mean to reconcile. I remember traveling to Israel. I remember traveling to, you know, all kinds of um, Holocaust, either museums or memories to just understand and deeply like realize that as part of the human journey, we're all facing this together. But at the same time, it was just the tiniest drop of water on a hot stone. It felt like, you know, and I think it's important for us to talk about this because if, if we look a little, you know, a little deeper, it's across all cultures. It's, it's, if it's, 
Black Lives Matter that obviously is like coming up extremely right now in, in the world because it's never been addressed. And so there is so much pain. If it is, you know, I introduced you as an eco-feminist, if it is the suppression of the feminine, right? If it is the suppression of uh, genders, of, of free choice of genders, this is the world that, that we're in. And so building resilience from an understanding of nature's principles, I think is more vital and more important than ever. Yeah, and I think what is so important is to recognize that we can't address any one of those oppressions without really dealing with the whole mess of it because they all go together and they mm. all reinforce each other. Uh, and yeah, I've had that same realization. You know, I'm Jewish by heritage and I've been doing work in Germany since the early 80s. Uh, and the first time I'll never forget, I had a, one of my books was translated into German and the German publishers brought me over to do a workshop and uh, they sent this very handsome, attractive young man to pick me up at the airport and we went back to his apartment and in his apartment there was a menorah. And I just remember seeing that and like absolutely freezing and going into shock. It's like immediately, like, where do you get that? Did he kill some Jew for it? Did he take it from a concentration camp? Like, ah, and just very, having to very sort of quietly say, oh, uh, so I see you have a menorah. Where did you get that? And he's like, oh, yes, my best friend in college was Jewish. She was here because of the reparations, and he gave me that. And I was like, oh, right. <laughs> See that whole story I had created immediately out of that. But it took me years to actually feel comfortable in Germany. And in fact, it wasn't until one time I had been in Palestine and Israel doing solidarity work and came back to Germany. And it was like suddenly something shifted. And I went, oh, it's not that there's something wrong with the German people is that there's something, some capacity in people mm. that we have to look at and we have to address. But the, you know, the other side of that, the side that to me is so beautiful and so mm -hmm. hopeful is, again, that side of regeneration and knowing, you know, the tools of regenerating the land are actually pretty clear and simple. We know how to do that. And if you go just... Uh, start googling around on the internet looking for some of the amazing water projects in India and the amazing restoration projects. Uh, you can look at John Liu's films, um, Hope in a Changing Plant, in a Changing Climate, you know, about the way they've restored massive areas of China. Um, but a couple of years ago I was in India for an international permaculture convergence and uh, Narsana Kapila and Padma Kapila, who are the center of an organization called Aranya, had organized the conference. And we got to meet with them and meet with some of the farmers they'd been working with. Narsana took Bill Mollison, who was the, one of the founders of permaculture, he took his first workshop in India 30 years before. And he started working with local farmers who came again from the poorest strata of society. Um, and he was from an upper caste. Um, so he kind of helped people gain some land 
it wasn't a lot of land, but it was like um, maybe an, a hectare or two. Um, and worked with the women and got them growing food for themselves instead of for market. You know, food that they could use to feed their families, growing polycultures, growing a diversity of crops instead of growing like, you know, industrial cotton for the market. And um, it transformed their lives. You know, it took these very, very poor people who had nothing, who were malnourished, who couldn't get vegetables because everyone was just growing cotton and to go to the market was miles and miles away and was a long hot journey and it took petrol that they didn't have money for or they had to send their husbands who often would stop off on the way back for a drink and the vegetables would wilt by mm -hmm. the time you know and transformed it so that they were growing food and they could feed their families and feed them with good nutrition it transformed the power relations because now the women were the farmers and the women were the distributors of the food and their husbands had to come to them for food instead of them having to go to their husbands for money to buy food. Uh, he worked with the women and also worked with the men and taught them the need to respect women and treat women with respect. And the women began teaching and training other women uh, and traveling. and that elevated their whole status in society. Uh, and so we met with them and they were beautiful and they were all so happy. They were singing songs about permaculture that they made up and um, it was just an incredibly beautiful connection. And I just sat there realizing, you know, we really, we could feed the world. We don't mm. have to have an underclass of half a billion people who are malnourished all over the planet. We don't have to have two billion people without access to clean water. You know, we actually have the tools to solve these problems. Um, but again, it begins by understanding we need to solve them on a basis of social justice. Very powerful. Yes, yes. The myth of the overpopulation is really is really just a story of social injustice and, 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 you know, some form of, I don't want to call it a brainwash, but it's some, some form of a brainwash Be, because really regeneration and hands in the soil will get us all to have our own food supply. And over and over they find that the, the most effective way to create a balance in the population is by empowering and educating women and making sure women have control over their own bodies. And I'm so curious to hear more, hear more about that. You know, it, like the, just even the term ecofeminism is, is not something that, you know, you come across all the time. And so it's so clear what you're sharing, right? It's like when we empower women um, who, who are the life givers of our species, something changes. Yeah. And creating economic systems, food growing systems, cultural systems, where people can feel confident their children can survive, um, then they have less of an impulse to continue having more and more and more. Mm. So Starhawk, I mean, 
you know, I'm so grateful we went into both the, the deep shadow side of our species and then the hopeful part. How do you personally stay optimistic with this work and this awareness for how much is deeply, uh, you know, unsettling about our species uh, stage of evolution? How did you, you know, come back and back and back to optimism throughout your journey? Well, I find that... Um in some ways, optimism is a practice that uh, you have to make choices about what you focus on. You know, again, we can't ignore, yeah, you can't ignore the bad things that are happening, um, but you also, you can't like just, you know, ruminate on them over and over and over again and drive yourself into a little negative downward spiral. You know, in permaculture, again, we try to focus on the solutions. We know the solutions are there. Um, we can look at the obstacles to implementing those solutions, but um, we try to, again, stay focused on what we can do and stay active and practice what we can do rather than get ourselves all wound up into feeling hopelessness and powerlessness about what we can't do. Mm. And I recommend to people really almost like a spiritual practice. Like, you know, when you find yourself, you're reading an article and you're going, oh, it's so bad and they're so bad and they're controlling this and they're making this and I'm powerless about this, to maybe just stop and say, well, what's one actual act I can take to do about this? You know, am I, you know, all in a frenzy about Trump destroying the post office before the elections? You know, well, you know, maybe I can take a breath and I can make one call to my representative and express my opinion. You know, am I worried about people getting COVID and not having food and not having something? Well, maybe I can at least go out there and help distribute food one day mm. um, grow something that my neighbors can eat or sew one mask for somebody and as soon as you do one thing again it sets a different movement going inside you and you'll find it'll open up the path you know, to do another thing and to do another thing mm. yeah participation I come back to that over and over again myself is, is how we take the intellectual mind or the intellectual idea of enlightenment into, into real embodiment. Mm -hmm. I'd, I'd love to hear your, your ideas and um, understandings around purpose. You know, it's often a buzzword, but it, it feels to me that you were already talking about purpose and purposeful action there. How would you unpack the term purpose? Well, to me, I think each one of us comes into life with a purpose. You know, we come in with a certain set of talents and abilities and inclinations uh, and things we're attracted to and things we like and don't like and a certain set of limitations. Uh, we come in with, you know, in with a relationship to all of these external systems that maybe categorize us unfairly by our race or our skin color or, you know, our money or whatever, but we have to contend with them. We have to figure out who we are in relation to them and how we can navigate 
in whatever position we find ourselves. And out of that, uh, I believe human beings have some very powerful needs um, beyond food and clothing and shelter and sex. I feel like we have a strong need to feel like we belong to something and a strong need, uh, a very, very strong need to feel part of something bigger than ourselves. Um, and we have a very strong need to feel like we're making some kind of contribution, mm. that we have some kind of power and some kind of agency. Um, and when we can meet those needs, that's what gives us our purpose. You know, if we figure out how, you know, what out of my particular gifts, you know, um, what's going to make me most effective in creating my contribution, mm. then that will give me my purpose. And that connects you directly to the sense of belonging, right? That, that idea of being seen, being recognized, seeing and recognizing others. Mm-hmm. You know, because you're sitting in a beautiful co-living space, maybe you can share a bit about how belonging and purpose and being in community, um, you know, may maybe even just, just tell us about like how the, the house that you're in right now in San Francisco, how that is set up. Because I think a lot of people right now, um, I'll context this a little bit because I'm, I'm really curious. And so a lot of people, I think, in the last seven to eight years have, have received a lot of mem like remembering a lot of downloads, a lot of understanding of spirit's door opening. And so now these next seven to eight years, the downloads I feel a lot of us are getting is getting the hands into the soil, actually living in community, actually being part of regenerative building. And so maybe you can share a bit and inspire people um, into how that could look. Yeah, I mean, I think there are many different ways to be in community. And for me, community... It's like if someone were to say, is there one word that's an antidote to climate change? It would be community. You know, that all the things we need to do to address climate change, you know, we need to relocalize. We need to be growing our food closer to where we eat it and live. We need to relocalize, you know, the other systems that meet our needs and not assume that we can just use fossil fuels to cheaply transport everything all around the planet. You know, we need sources of renewable energy that are distributed rather than massively centralized. Um, we need to come back to taking care of the environment around us, which we tend to do when we're looking at what's directly around us and we no longer have the convenient place we call away you know, where we can locate the nasty stuff uh, which usually gets located again in those same places where the people that we relegate to being the less valued class of people live you know again once we reconstitute that and mm. we're all in community uh, then we also recognize we're in community with the earth and we have to protect it take care of it just like you want to clean up your house and not let it, you know, get full of uh, mice. And <laughs> totally. It, it's, it's powerful what you said there about this ominous idea of a way. Yeah. You kind of uh, anticipated a question that I, I, I didn't ask it, which uh -huh. is just about like, our, you know, the way we regard trash on this planet and like 
stuff we just get rid of and and it, it's really this it, this illusion of a way I'll, I'll share with you i recently had ron garen on the show ron is uh, one of nasa's former astronauts he was in space for 176 days i believe and it was mind-boggling to me in the most beautiful way that someone who has been in outer space has a direct experience of that same level of consciousness than our indigenous brothers and sisters. This idea that actually we are all in community with earth. Actually we are all here together and it, we might not have the ability to fly everyone to outer space to truly understand that, but it's real now here already. And there is no away. There is no trash. There is no, no uh, way to giving it to someone in the later generation. It's, it's all ours. I remember um, back in the late 60s, early 70s, um, just how powerful it was when the space program first started to see those images of the Earth from space. The first time we'd seen that whole planet shot from space and to recognize, oh, there's no little lines all over these continents, you know, for the country. Yeah. Uh, this is one thing, you know, and a beautiful thing, and we need to understand it and take care of it that way. Very, very much so. I have, I have another few questions in regards to that, and um, I'd love to talk with you about, you know, um, li little humans. Uh -huh. So if you, Starhawk, either by yourself or with a team of experts, could change the education system at large, what would you do? Um, I would change it to make it more experiential, less about downloading knowledge and pouring it into little heads and more about encouraging kids, you know, in groups and in teams to explore the world and to set up the world to be explored. And I, you know, I've written a couple of novels, The Fifth Sacred Thing and The uh, City of Refuge, which is the sequel to it, where I it kind of created my vision of utopia. And in it, the children have learning groups. And the whole city is set up where, you know, for kids to explore and to be safe exploring on their own. Um, you know, where you might go to a learning station. You might learn about the planets by actually, like, walking from the sun in the center of the city out to where Mercury is and Mars and, you know, get a, a visceral sense of how far apart everything is. And then when you get there, there'd be all of the information about it and games to play and ways to interact with it. Um, you know, we'd have parks where you could slide down a Fibonacci spiral slide, or you could work with a giant abacus, or you could learn math in those experiential ways rather than by sitting at a desk somewhere. Um, and take learn to, from an early age to take responsibility for your own learning. I also think it's really vital right now that we teach skills around things like critical thinking. You know, especially for older children, I think every kid should be getting teaching and training and how do you evaluate information when you're flooded by so much on the internet you know how do you know how to tell what's true and what's not true how do you know you know 
How do you find out what's like a form of literacy, like a media literacy, right? Yeah, we desperately need that now because, you know, even if we succeed, hopefully, in getting rid of the current cast of fascist clowns that are running government, um, what we have to look at is not just who these guys are, but how did they get into power? What are the impulses that put them there? Um, what are the systems that allowed this to happen in um, such a terrible way? And who's enabled them? Mm. I didn't think we'd come back to this um, because we touched on the reconciliation and kind of what's been in, in your and my interbeing there with, you know, between me having a German family and growing up in Germany and you having Jewish background. But I think as a as a kid growing up in Germany and now a, a man living in Canada, it's it's boggling my mind that actually these things that I've learned in school that was like you shall not forget, mm -hmm. the earth has not learned. Well, the the humans on earth have not learned yet collectively. We're still as susceptible to propaganda and to manipulation and brainwash as long as it triggers us at the quotation marks here right uh, emotional centers right and so through social media and um, detailed micro-targeting on social media, it's just become worse, obviously. But I'm, I'm so with you. What we need to learn is to look behind that curtain collectively and then just understand we are extremely powerful and beautiful and we're also extremely powerful and destructive. And those are the mechanisms in which we do that. And as it becomes visible, hopefully we can step out of it. And yeah. I don't have the answer into what we need to step into in terms of systems, but let's start at, at again, another buzzword, the decentralized governance rather than the uh, authoritarian government. Right? Yeah, the government that can empower people and support people rather than control people. And how do we actually teach and train and educate our citizens for that kind of government. I think part of what's happened to us in the last 10 years is that social media came in and flooded the world with a whole different kind of information environment than we'd ever had before. Mm. Uh, and people really weren't prepared for it. And on top of that, we've had an education system in the US, which for the last 10, 20, I don't know how many years has been really forcibly dumbed down um, where the focus has been on testing and things that are quantifiable not on things like how do we teach critical thinking uh, and you can see in places where that's been a little bit different like I think about those incredible young people from Florida after that mass shooting um, that from their high school who came out and who organized like a massive national movement around gun violence mm -hmm. and a lot of that was because they were all they were on the debate team and they had actually learned again those skills of critical thinking of speaking of making an argument um, so I think every child should be learning that uh, I think children should be learning decision-making skills and tools. You know, I've trained lot, thousands of activists and 
consensus decision making mm. and ways of organizing. And um, I have one friend, Linda Sartor, who I met when she had a consensus classroom where she was teaching in the public school system, kind of running her classroom by consensus and teaching kids those skills. You know, I've seen other great programs where they're teaching conflict resolution early and how to show up in a fight and resolve it in a way that's respectful and peaceful. And I think we need a lot more of that kind of education. Yeah, I'm very grateful for your answer here, Starhawk. I have one last question for you and happy to explore and expand on things we've already touched on. And so this last question is what got me to start this podcast is to really understand what is in people's souls. What is the dream for our planet, for our species? What are we, what are we here to create and co-create? And so I want to give a context to it. The context is one of seven generations, seven generations into the future. So if we were to zoom out on the timeline right now and keep in mind and at heart that there are other generations after us that we're stewarding this earthship for, Starhawk, what is your dream for the planet? What is your, your Earth vision? Well, my first vision is that we will actually have seven generations. <laughs> I think it's far less than certain right now. Um, but I would love to envision that time as one where we understand these tools and patterns of working with nature. And we understand that we are one species of humanity we're not you know separate castes that can be relegated to uh simply being the underclass or the servant class but that we are all one class and that we have a society that supports that um, and that really encourages each person to figure out what their purpose is and use them the tools and the support they need to fulfill it um, that values imagination and values beauty and pleasure uh, and values above all the health and the life of the planet that supports all of that and i truly believe that's a very possible dream um, and that's what i work toward and i think what a lot of us are working toward mm -hmm. United, we stand for that. Thank you so much for, you know, just a little glimpse and a little insight into the way you think, into the work you've been doing, into, you know, these topics that are both exciting and insightful, but also sometimes uncomfortable. And I do believe that, you know, by facing the discomfort, we're actually building the skills that you mentioned at the very beginning of this, this episode around resilience and resistance, right? and coming into action and, and coming into embodiment. Yeah. And, you know, when you face that discomfort, most of the things in life that are really worth doing, that are really exciting, that are really the things you look back on and go like, wow, I'm so glad I did that, they usually involve some discomfort. Mm. <laughs> you know, uh, whether that's your personal emotional discomfort, whether that's like camping out or... <laughs> physical comforts or you know whether it's slogging around heavy buckets full of compost tea whatever it is and that's okay we're built for that again we're um yeah we are we are thank you so much for your time starhawk thank you
Hello, I'm Chris Gilmore from episode 224, Learning from Emergency Planning. I'm here to offer Green Planet, Blue Planet listeners a special opportunity to get 20% off two of my in-depth learning experiences. Opportunity number one is reading nature's forgotten language. Go deeper than you may even realize is possible in your relationship with the natural world and your ability to interpret nature's signs, tracks, and sounds. Nature has a language, and reading it is an ancient skill that is almost lost in our modern world. Relearning to read nature's story can help you be a better earth steward, learn to learn directly from nature, and it can greatly enhance your relationship with and the experiences you have in the outdoors. Watch the trailer and some of the sample lessons over at www.naturesforgottenlanguage.com and enter code GREENPLANET for 20% off. Opportunity number two is called Survive the Storms. In an era of rapid environmental, economic, and social change, do you want to feel better prepared to keep yourself and family safe? Whether a pandemic, extreme weather event, wildfire, or other unexpected disaster, Survive the Storms will help you build peace of mind and confidence fast. Check out the trailer of our one-of-a-kind game-like training that makes preparedness and safety both fun and practical. This one is very timely. Visit survivethestorms.com and don't forget to enter code GREENPLANET for 20% off. Both links are also available in the show notes. So stay connected, stay aware, stay safe with naturesforgottenlanguage.com and survivethestorms.com.